Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 40, and today I'm joined with Brian Hulse of BD Hulse Consulting, and today we're going to talk about gas turbines. Brian, welcome to Energy Radio. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you, and uh, looking forward to a fun conversation on uh, on gas turbines or gas turbines. Uh, we'll use those uh, pronunciations interchangeably, I'm sure. But uh, before we get into the topic, I'd uh, love for you to... Uh, Tell us about yourself and and uh, what brought you into this industry, and then uh, maybe a bit about what what you're doing these days. Sure, Matt. Uh, I guess I started in 1977 in the United States Navy, and um, ended up doing 10 years there. Uh, started out as an electrician's mate, then got tagged as a nuclear electrician's mate, and then ended up cross-rating into, into the gas turbine field. And at that time, it was it was still an, an engineman C school. So I, I was an electrician's mate going to an engineman C school. That was kind of interesting. Hmm. And uh, then, they, then they actually, the Department of Defense actually waved their wand and made us all GSEs and GSMs, gas systems, electricians, and mechanics. And okay. because I was electrical background, I became a GSE. So I uh, did about five and a half years on a ship, uh, then ended up in Great Lakes teaching gas turbine school for a couple years. And at the end of that, I was tagged as a, as a, uh, uh, resource for the curriculum development department and was actually rewriting the, the, the course, rewriting the pipeline. Mm. So for the last year I was there, that's what I was doing was was writing course material. Okay. So uh, got out in, in uh, 86, went to California, started doing operations and maintenance and gas turbine based power plants. These are all aero derivative. Uh, did that until 2000. Uh, had a bunch of different assignments. At one point, I was managing 14 plants. Uh, at another point, I was managing, uh, I started and managed a, a gas turbine maintenance group uh, that, that was responsible for heavy maintenance in all those plants. And at another point, I was, I was in charge of, of their central facility, which encompassed not only the gas turbine servicing but also training and also safety and also document control and a couple other functions that I don't remember right now. <laughs> so um, left there, came to Florida hmm. and started working with a company that was involved in uh, gas turbine internal engine components, uh, and they were interested in manufacturing hot gas components for aeroderivative engines. And I had managed a couple of projects when I was doing the operations and maintenance that was related to that. So I got picked up by them. Uh, life happened. Enron happened, a lot of things happened, and that turned into an op opportunity to design and build a 
mobile gas turbine package. Okay, cool. So I got to I got to head the engineering on that team and uh, got my name on a few patents. That was cool. Awesome. Um, and then Enron cratered and it got bought by another company and they ended up not doing anything with it. So in 2006, I uh, went to work managing an independent repair depot for aero derivatives, Pratt Whitney FT4s and, and GLM 2500s. Okay. Uh, did that till right to the end of 13 and in 14, went to work for a company that did mobile power plant rentals. And they had a fleet of about 52 gas turbine based rental units. And these are uh, G's LM2500 and Pratt Whitney's FT8. And uh, worked with them until 2016. And then in 2016, I went out on my own as a consultant. And that's what I've been doing ever since. All right. Wow. So you've, uh, you've, you've been in, in this industry from really all aspects from all, all different facets of the industry. You've, you've seen it all. Well, a lot of it, that's for sure. Yeah. Back to the Navy for a minute. And this is, you know, something I've, you know, kind of touched on a little bit, uh, but, but not much, you know, not enough to really understand, but in the, in the core of the Navy's fleet, are there kind of one or two or three different propulsion platforms? This is, not maybe what we were going to talk about, but I'm just, you've scratched a, a curiosity itch there. Uh, you mentioned nuclear, but you also mentioned gas uh, turbines. Can you give us the Coles Notes version of uh, the Navy's propulsion system without giving away any secrets? Well, the Navy got, the Navy got involved with gas turbines really when they started working with what they call LCACs, LCACs, landing crafts. These oh. are basically hovercraft. Ah. And they started working with Rolls-Royce Avon engines. And then they, they had a, a test bed for propulsion. And then they moved to the, the uh, propulsion uh, uh, system that they have on the Spruance class destroyers, which was, which was, has turned out to be kind of their, their base, set up for a lot of years on their larger ships. They have uh, two engines in each engine room, two engine rooms. So it's, it's a twin shaft arrangement. Uh, and that has, has grown from when I was in, they were running engines that averaged about 21,500 shaft horsepower. to now the ones that they're running are, are 36, 38,000 hmm. shaft horsepower. Uh, they've also started doing combinations of uh, gas turbine for high-speed running and diesels for economy. Oh, yeah. So, Kodag, Kodog type things. Uh, and they've, they've uh, ventured off into, into uh, some, some uh, expansion of early work they did. They used uh, Allison 501s for two megawatt generators on, on a lot of the older ships. 
of course, Allison was bought by Rolls Royce. And so they've, they've started now expanding that and, and trying on some of the ships using the MT-30 Rolls-Royce okay. engine. Okay. So, so their program has grown quite a bit over the years. And uh, the one thing when I, when I went through their training and then when I, when I came back and taught and, and did curriculum development, that I really got to appreciate was the fact that they focused on gas turbine fundamentals and didn't really pay that much attention to specific platforms until you got right to the end of your training. Mm. So they were kind of setting you up to succeed with any gas turbine. Cool. And, and so you came out with all the fundamentals, how they operated, you know, how they can go wrong. And then right at the kind of closure of your course, you, you say, oh, you're going to go to this type of ship, so now we're going to give you a couple weeks of specialized training on that particular plan. But overall, the, the, the course material was, was much more focused on just the basics. And, and that probably people familiar with them. And that probably allowed your students to be on the Navy go a bunch of different directions as well with that training as well did it not yeah because they it, it it gives you a level of comfortability in terms of going platform to platform because you get a you get an attitude and it can sound a little presumptuous but in a in a high speed environment where you've got a lot of personnel turning over to different sites it makes sense where well i don't really care what you send it send me to what plant you send me to it, it's a gas turbine i'll figure it out right right that cool. becomes your that becomes your attitude yeah and, and the guys that i think really have leveraged that is of course the 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 navy program is all focused on aeroderivative type engines but the guys who've really leveraged it are the guys who have come out into the civilian world and been able to move to the Westinghouse 501D5s or the or the GE Frame 7 or Frame 9 or you know these different industrial combustion turbines. And again, that you know, they they don't have worries about it. They don't have they don't have concerns that you know I don't know the equipment. You know they understand gas turbines. They understand right. the auxiliaries that it takes to run gas turbines. So, you know, okay, show, show me show me where the equipment is. I'll go figure it out. Right, right. So you touched on it there, and I think maybe for our listeners it's helpful. Uh, can you draw the contrast between an aeroderivative machine and an industrial machine? You know, what, what what's different? What what makes one one or the other? Well, so classically the way that the way that this all kind of works out is nasa and the national labs figure out materials and 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 coatings and technologies to take us to space and part of their thing is is the government doesn't want to support them so the things that they invent, they have to try to commercialize. 
And if you're making rocket engines, the people who can make use of your technology are pretty slim. But certainly one of them is people who make engines that go on airplanes. Right. Because they're lightweight, they have to fly. Their focus is, is you know, pounds, pounds cargo versus pounds thrust. So a lot of that technology crosses over. So it goes to the Pratt Whitney's and the GE's of the world. They make use of it in military engines, which is, of course, the highest technology engines. Once, once it becomes passe there, it gets passed off to the commercial engines and you fly them. And then once better technology comes to them, it filters down to us. We make use of it for making power and, and for pumping and compression and things like that on the ground. So that's kind of how that has all worked. The combustion turbine folks have kind of started out back in the, in the day in the steam turbine world. Mm. And so in a combustion turbine environment, whereas we call blades blades, they call blades buckets. Okay. And that runs back to their steam turbine days. The combustion turbines don't have to fly, never had to fly. So they don't worry about how much they weigh. So their casings are very, very thick and they're made of relatively simple alloys historically. And, in, 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 you know, they, as they tried to become, uh, you know, more, more updated and they get more and more technology in them, obviously the alloys have gotten a lot smarter and things and the coatings, but, you know, they, they started out relatively simple. They started out relatively low temperature. And so, you know, they, they used bearing technology that they were comfortable with. They used, they used sleeve bearings and, and babbitted bearings, whereas the aircraft engines were all high-speed rotors and we're using roller bearings and, and ball bearings. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the technologies have come from two different places. But as we've, we've, we've gotten into the 21st century, the technologies have started more and more to merge. Mm. So the so those combustion turbines that we used to laugh at in the craft community and uh, slow rollers, blah blah blah, you know, <laughs> start them up and they smoke. All of a sudden, we're seeing, you know, the Inconels and and the and the and the, the TBC coatings and the things that that used to be solely the province of, of aeroderivative engines. Now all of a sudden they're showing up in these industrial gas turbines and, and they're making great use of them. They're, mm. they're getting their efficiencies, you know, up, up where, where we are, they're getting, uh, uh, you know, and, and because of the, of the, the, the scale of the casings and the things that they don't use as much speed on their rotors, they can scale up to much bigger output sizes than we can. The biggest, the biggest output of an aeroderivative engine is going to be about 60 megawatts. And you've got, you've got industrial turbines over 200, well over 200. So they can scale up and have more power density per square foot 
than we can do in an engine gotcha. in the aerodynamic side. So that's kind of the differences. Wow. That was uh, way more than I was expecting, and that was awesome. That was, um, you know, that was a real history lesson. You, you got the almost the trickle down economics of the uh, the aeroderivative side, and then you have the bottom up kind of approach on the industrials. And uh, that was a wow. That was that was a great uh, explanation. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate that for for myself, quite selfishly, but also for um, our listeners. So let's let's uh, kind of pivot. Um, and, and talk to us, you know, you, you gave us your background. What, what are you working on now in the last, you know, five or six years? Uh, what's your space uh, in the marketplace in, in the turbine world? Well, as a consultant, of course, you're, you're, you're looking at everything that comes through the door. And so I've, I've had the opportunity to go help uh, – for instance, a developer that was running behind in schedule on on uh, some installations of, of uh, uh, reciprocating engines that were natural gas fueled that were supporting the grid. Uh, and this was in the UK, supporting the grid as they change over to more and more uh, green power. Uh, they needed a very fast reacting support if they started to have grid sag from low wind or low wave action or no sun or whatever it was. And uh, so they're installing very fast reacting reciprocating engines that can come up and be fully loaded within one minute, within 60 seconds. And uh, they were just behind on their schedule. So, I mean, that, you know, doing, doing something like that where you're doing project management type things, Okay. Uh, has been has you know that's been one thing. I've I've been involved in a couple of situations where uh, I was being used as an expert witness in in lawsuits on disputes with uh, services or or with warranties things like that. Uh, root cause analysis, engine failures. Cool. Uh, trying trying to figure out why things are breaking, how to stop them from breaking. Um, so now, now you're in the business of getting paid for what you know and not for what you do. Uh, well, kind of, kind of, kind of for both. <laughs> okay. Cool. cool. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, some best practices with respect to, you know, to maintenance. I mean, it's it's important to buy the right machine and install it properly, but you know, that's a that's a part of the job, and then you got to run it for 20 or 30 years. You know, particularly in any application, but you know, power generation specifically. Um, you know, and around here, you know, my, my uncle who started the firm, he, he was a turbine guy, you know, when you see the 501 KB units, he, he worked for us turbine for a while and he did the 501 KB five and the KB seven and they tried to do some Trent and RB 211 stuff. And so, so we've, you know, we've touched turbines from a bit of a different perspective, but he would always say, you know, give me clean air, give me clean fuel, give me clean oils and away we go. But, but talk to us a little bit about kind of best practices from a maintenance perspective and kind of some of the lessons you've learned along the way. Well, I guess the first thing is that competency has a charm all its own. Mm. Uh, people try to hire the labor force that's available to them 
which may or may not have the correct training. And then they, they regardless of, of what training comes through the door in their hiring system, they don't pay a lot of attention to ongoing education mm. and backfilling the gaps of the people that they've got when they don't, you know, when they don't have specific skills. So I think that I think that having having a uh, a good handle on what you expect from an employee as as a minimum training bar, you know, in terms of either formalized training or on the job training or experience, what are the things that you expect them to know coming through the door? And then what do you expect them to know as a baseline technician in your, in your facility? Mm. You know, not all these guys are going to want to go be leaders that want to take all these, uh, you know, extended education credits and all this stuff, but you want them to have a levelized training baseline so that you you have you have confidence that the foundations are out there right and that your assets are being maintained and operated properly because you you know inside the office in inside the conference room you've uh you've signed up to a set of numbers mm. okay and you've you've promised your CEO or your board of directors or however your leadership is structured, you've promised them that this huge capital asset that, that they've gone out and wrote a check for, and, and whether you're doing industrials or L derivatives, it's a big check, right? That that asset is going to perform at a certain level for a certain number of years. And if you've got Rocky and Bowwinkle out there doing your maintenance and operations, you know, chances are you're not going to make your pro forma. So I think that you know people people forget to circle up on that, and they don't realize you know they they think oh great I'm cutting my O and M costs, mm. but are you really? Right. Because, right. because you know, if you don't know if if, if you if you don't know the, what the foundations are out there, you know, they may they may not know how to lock wire properly. They may not know how to do fuel liquid fuel management properly. They right. may not know how to do boiler water testing and treatment. And you know, all these things are 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 critical. Sometimes people get focused on, on those gas turbines because they're the magic machine, but they forget that that 150-year-old technology called a generator needs some maintenance too. Right. You know, so, so you can't get tunnel vision and you can't go into it without a, a firm foundation of, of, of knowledge and skills. How does an owner navigate 
you know, you, you mentioned training for, for operations and maintenance. How, how does it, how does an owner navigate what they should be doing themselves versus, you know, a partnership with a, a, a third party that do not, not operations, but maintenance, like how, how do they, you know, divide what, what, what's worked well to kind of divide that line. I, I think sometimes we rely too much on external partners or not enough. There's a bit of a dynamic there, isn't there? Well, I think, I think it's really, you know, it's, it's a philosophical choice that everybody has to make at some time. And, and it, it, it just depends on, on what your leadership is comfortable with and sometimes what your insurance company or what your lender is comfortable with. A lot of times they become uh, more active partners than you may want them to be. But, you know, so you have to be, but you have to be sensitive about it because, I mean, if it comes down to, a, for instance, an insurance company wanting, wanting say-so on, on some aspect of this, and you decide not to give it to them, then you're risking uh, a bumpy uh, insurance claim process at some point mm. in your future, right? And having to and having to justify that that insurance claim, you know, perhaps over the course of three or four meetings, which are always expensive, and 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 maybe legal representation when if you'd have acquiesced or at least made some type of a, of a gesture at the front end it, it might have it might have gone easier mm. so those those people have to be considered when you're when you're when you're going off and doing this but you know I think about everybody uh, takes that initial shot at, at uh, uh, when they when they purchase the equipment, they take the initial shot at getting the OEM to come in and do some level of training with that that first commissioning staff, and right. they also take some level of shot at at trying to, uh, if not hire a, a a pretty smart commissioning staff to begin with, either either. Uh, maybe maybe hiring a couple of, of consultants or maybe hiring one or two really good experienced operators in that mix uh, or a plant manager or, or a maintenance manager uh, but I mean you know what happens in the first year it generally kind of sets the tone and you're going through all the warranties with your with your EPC contractor and with your OEMs and everybody in that in that period. So so you you kind of figure out what you can get away with and where you have to pay attention at that point. You know if if you're if you're observant. And uh, you know I've I've always tried to tried to make it a, a, a kind of a mix of, of formalized training versus OJT and, and uh, uh, learn as you go type, type activities because, you know, at the end, there's always going to be turnover in your, in your organization 
and that training always has to be an ongoing process and you know and then and and if you if you're not adept and agile at it when you get out into like year seven or nine and you have to go through something that's that's really critical like a like a uh a controls upgrade for instance where you're going to upgrade the the fuel control and sequencer on your gas turbine okay expensive proposition complicated proposition a lot of planning a lot of a lot of preparatory work before it happens obviously it's not a short process so you so you uh, are down for a, a good period of time but when you come back up all those controls all those screens all that incoming data all of that information is coming at your operators differently and there's probably more of it and if you don't keep up with the training then these guys are going to be blindsided by it mm. and and they're going to be at a loss so mm. so you know you have to you have to keep your chops up in that area and because that you're always learning something mm. there's always going to be a new transmitter there's always going to be you know something new on the water system or you know, new in, in the, uh, on an air compressor. And these guys, you know, magic fairies just don't come down and teach them. They have to, they have to be trained. And that's our responsibility as leadership. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think we all get excited about the project and, you know, we want to turn it on and get it running. And, and we, we often forget that crucial step of, of, of training and, and how valuable to your point about OJT on the job training, how valuable those commissioning stages can be. I mean, the, these operators can learn so much of you know how this machine is supposed to operate during commissioning. So much, so much goes wrong, right? You know, there's so much that can be learned uh, as you're starting up these machines in terms of how they run, how they're not supposed to run, some of the the controls and the protection relays, and on and on and on. There's there's lots of stuff that uh, that can be learned. Um, beyond training, what are some other areas that you've seen as common trouble spots in terms of, you know, the O and M side of, of, of turbines in terms of lack of maintenance here or, you know, certain things that are common trouble spots? Almost everybody that, that, especially on the aeroderivatives is running liquid fuel mm. has problems. And they they don't understand they don't understand liquid fuel, and 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 the worst part about it is they think they do. Mm. We 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 use liquid fuel in our cars, in our trucks, right? And 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 then somebody argues, well, you use use diesel on these on these on these jet engines. Well, a lot a lot of pickup trucks use diesel. And a lot of these guys who come to work in these power plants are driving diesel trucks. So they're so so they absolutely believe that they know exactly what has to happen. The problem is is that the engines that are in that diesel truck, if it's a Dodge, for instance, if it's a Cummins, uh, Cummins understands that, that that's an over-the-road vehicle 
and they understand how fuel is is transported and stored and delivered to over the road vehicles so they designed their in their engines and their fuel injectors and their rails and their valves and all parts of that fuel system so they can so they can manage in that environment with that fuel and be successful just like cummins the rolls royces and the general electrics of the world design their engines for the fuel that they know they're going to receive and that's aviation fuel that's fuel that if it's in the wing of an airplane i can trace back to the crude stock that the refiner used to make it with i know every truck it's been in i know every hose it's been in i know every tank it's been in i know every additive that's been added to it right that fuel has been highly managed and 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 these aircraft engine manufacturers take advantage of that they know that they have this ultra pure fuel at, at their disposal right and so the the the, the fuel passages in the fuel nozzles all the all the, the valving that they use all the 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 forwarding systems that they use are all geared towards using that aviation fuel now that engine is taken out of the aviation environment and put in our industrial environment and we're not buying fuel from the airport mm. we're buying fuel from fred's bunker <laughs> and fred you don't really care how clean his tank is and, and he don't really care what truck shows up to put fuel in that tank or where that truck came from so the fuel quality that we get in the plant to run in these engines is magnitudes lower than it is in an aviation environment and so we as, as as plant operators have to be prepared for that our systems have to be prepared for that we have to understand about tank settling mm. we have to understand about water paste and sticking tanks and understanding how much water is in the bottom of that tank we have to understand about biocide treatment to make sure we don't get bacterial growth because there's critters out there that eat diesel fuel and if you've never been in a tank full of those, it's not fun. <laughs> it's like half done jello and it stinks. <laughs> so, you know, you have to understand purifiers, rotating purifiers, centrifugal purifiers. You have to understand coalescing filtration. And when you start talking to plant folks about these types of steps in a fuel system, they look at you like you're crazy because they're not used to that level of purity, right? They don't understand that Jet A doesn't, doesn't form fuel wax crystals until about minus 40 F. Diesel fuel starts forming fuel uh, wax crystals at about 17 F. 
So it won't even pump. Yeah. Right. Whereas those aircraft are out there, they're just fat, dumb, and happy because that Jet A works great in cold weather. Right, right. So, hmm. so I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you're fighting when you're when you're working with liquid fuel. Mm-hmm. And if your EPC contractor hasn't given you the right equipment in your systems, that's one problem. If you don't have the 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 training and the capacity chops at your at your at your site to manage it, that's a whole different problem. Mm-hmm. And and all of it ends up in your hot section. And, you know, that's a million plus every time you screw one up. And I've seen them last eight weeks. Wow. With bad fuel. Yeah. So that's that's another one. Yeah. Tell, Brian, I'm sure you've seen it all. Tell us some, you know, just, just to scare our listeners for a minute, tell us some horror stories. of, of, of What's the worst you've seen out there? Uh, oh, I, I mean, the, the, the worst that you can see, especially on the aircraft side, but I've, I've seen it actually on the, on the industrial side too, is an uncontained engine failure, which is parts out of the casing. Wow. Um, we work with machines that have a tremendous amount of stored potential energy. And everything is designed to work in perfect harmony and perfect dance steps. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. <laughs> One wrong step. And everything goes sideways. And I've seen I've seen high pressure turbine rotors come out of engines. I've seen foot and a half diameter holes blown in the side of engines with with fuel nozzles that had had blockages in them and turned the flame front out towards the case instead of going down where it should you know it 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 it's it's amazing that that they work so well for such a high percentage of the time but it's like you know when they're good they're very very good and when they're bad they're awful <laughs> And um, I, I count myself as, as being very fortunate to, to have gone through my entire career arc and not actually seen somebody die. Yeah. Wow. I, 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 I know people in the industry who have died. Really? Yes. Wow. yes. Just, just because they're such a, when things go wrong, they can be such a destructive force. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Well, let, let's uh, let's let's go from there to something a bit more uh, more positive. Let's let's think about kind of the arc of what you've seen and different technological advances. I mean, what what's come recently, or what's kind of on the cusp? Uh, what what are you you know really excited about or looking forward to, or you know what's the next kind of big innovation in in the turbine space? Well, I think all the manufacturers have have to one degree or another worked on some type of a scheme of, of dry low emissions. Mm. Okay. 
or yeah, whether they call it DLN or DLE or whatever they want to call it. Um, because because we're controlling that combustion process so closely on a regular basis almost all these machines require pretty highly qualified technicians to come in and and do what we call tuning where they're actually changing the algorithms in the in the uh, in the fuel control to match the machine degradation and get the best emissions profile out of it that they can considering the condition of the hardware mm. and, and the fuel and, and all the other variables that, that we deal with. So in the past few years, there's been efforts with a couple of the OEMs and with several third parties to computerize that process. And to make it either a either a uh, an open loop system or an actual closed loop system, hmm. where where you know you go in and and you have to press a button and it goes through a, a, a tuning process and then it goes you know and runs for a while and then you decide when it does it again. Or the thing is always looking at the emissions profile and always making minute adjustments. Hmm. What is, what is being adjusted, Brian? I mean, you're looking at the emissions on the back end, but what what adjustments do they have at their at their uh, disposal? Well, they're at, what the system's doing is it's making algorithm changes in the controls. Okay. But the, what the controls are doing is they're controlling the position of fuel staging valves. Sometimes two sets in a, two sets of manifolds on an engine. Sometimes three or four. And they're phasing these 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 different manifolds in and out in terms of pressure and flow to affect the 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 NOx and CO and sometimes unburnt hydrocarbons that you're mm -hmm. seeing out the back end. And they're looking they're they're looking at that obviously with no catalysts or other other uh, uh, emissions reduction equipment on the back side, you know. But they they're looking at the raw emissions off of the machine, and they're doing these these algorithm changes to change the scheduling of the fuel. And you know, obviously, it's 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 expensive and it's time consuming to have these guys come in and tune. Uh, so they're trying to 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 automate, and obviously. Controlling a combustion process is a, a very complex thing, and doing it real time is 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 not only complex, but now you're talking about speed rates of sensors and speed rates of computers and distance between sensors and computers because you're actually getting lag time from wire. Right. Um, so there's a lot of complexity in it, but that's that's certainly one place that that people are are doing a lot of work, and and it would it would uh, you know if they can get the if they can get it ironed out, I think it would be a a, a significant jump because it would mean that the the system is running optimally 
more of the time. More of the time, yeah. Yeah. Than, 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 than these systems are today, even though they're good today. Uh, but but that would mean that it's running closer closer to the to the best spot more often. Uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the big areas. Met- metallurgy is another area, isn't it? Where where they continue to make progress. <sighs> metallurgy. Metallurgy is always an area where they're trying to make progress, but the periodic table is pretty well fixed. And so, you know, we're not coming up with unobtainium anytime soon. Uh, People are, are, are obviously playing with different alloys and trying, you know, what if we add some of this? What if we take some of that out? Uh, I guess the bigger the bigger thing in that area is not so much the actual materials as it is the the processes where you know we kind of went from from equiax casting and then we then we went to to uh, uh, directionally solidifying stuff and then we went to single crystal and 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 you know now of course we're off into additive manufacturing. Yeah. Right, and so not so much the, the the actual physical material and playing with the periodic chart as the manufacturing techniques and how we're how we're making the manufacturing process more efficient. Now, the big challenge in my mind with with additive manufacturing is yes, we can build it. And it looks great, but how do we NDT it? Mm. How do how do we test it both at manufacture and after use? Make sure that it's acceptable for continued use. And what's unique about additive manufacturing that makes NDT non-destructive testing difficult? A lot of times when you do additive manufacturing, you make things that through any other process, you wouldn't be able to make. You'd have to bolt it together or you'd have to weld it together or braze it together. And now you're making a single piece. And so, whereas before you would test it by taking it apart and testing each of the individual components Mm -hmm. and then putting the assembly back together. Now there's there's areas in some of these parts you'll never see. Right. Until until you know you decide to put a bandsaw to it. <laughs> and at that point, you're done. Yeah. It's no longer you, non-destructive. You, yeah, you've lost the end part. Yeah. <laughs> the, end, the end part's gone. <laughs> oh, that's funny. so you know, there's that. There's also changes in the structure of the material in terms of like grain structure and stuff like that, where the techniques that you might have used on the part when it was made from a conventional, a more conventional uh, methodology, now when you're doing additive manufacturing, it might show up always as a defect because the additive manufacturing process 
is so different in the structure of the actual physical material that you know if you're using for instance uh, ultrasound you might get a, a a totally different signature off of it than you're used to seeing with a with a more conventional manufacturing uh, process so there's all kinds of challenges in the ndt world that people are looking at and trying to figure out okay we've got it now what do we do with it hmm. interesting um and one other advancement i guess and you you really can't swing a dead cat without somebody talking about hydrogen these days but you know talk to us about you know hydrogen as a fuel uh is this is this just kind of what's old is new again or is this something you think is is, is here to stay or give us your thoughts on hydrogen as a turbine fuel uh, well i mean from a from a from an emission standpoint ooh la la it's wonderful okay uh, and and from a, a processing standpoint if you compare it to fracking, for instance, you know, environmentally, the argument is is that the the process to to get you hydrogen is is a lot more environmentally friendly as well. the The part that I haven't come to grips with, and I think a lot of people are scratching their heads about, is metallurgists for years have have fought a, a function called hydrogen and brittlement mm -hmm. hydrogen is small it is like one <laughs> small and yeah. yeah and so hydrogen likes to hide between between the metal particles right the metal atoms it fits in there and when when that happens over a period of time, a lot of materials become brittle, and they lose their they lose their structural strength, and things start snapping and shattering and breaking. And trying to work with hydrogen in in places where it's worked with today, uh, commonly, for instance, a, a refinery or chemical plant it takes it takes paying some special attention to the metals and to the coatings and the and the and the, the fixtures that are used in a hydrogen system so as we move into using it in a combustion turbine whether it's an industrial turbine or an air derivative it makes one wonder well did the laws of nature just get to suspended and now hydrogen embrittlement's not going to happen anymore and I and I and 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 I think that's probably not the case. So, as we as we continue to explore hydrogen as fuel, I'm sure that we're going to find some of these problems creeping up. Uh, our friends once again at NASA have come up with a wonderful thing called an ETBC, which is an environmental and thermal. Uh, protective coating mm. that, that they they have used successfully in the exhaust structures on their rocket engines mm. for, to protect the structure from the exhaust gas because it's so corrosive right 
Now, it's not so much a heat issue as it is as it corrodes. And so they've, they've been working on that. And it's a multi-layer process. The last article that I saw on it, I think they had seven layers in this coating. Wow. But it was, it was designed to not only have a, a, a positive thermal effect, but also to protect the, the structure from the environment that it, that it was, it was uh, being operated in. So I think that there's things like that in the pipeline that, that, that might come to bear. And uh, that's what we're going to have to continue to, 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 to follow and see how these things pan out. I think, but I think that there's work to be done there. Obviously, I mean, you know, it's seductive. It's it's a it's a it's a holy cow. That's cool. But getting it from that to practical and and on a widespread basis, you know, again, there's going to be education in the plants. There's going to be processes in manufacturing. There's going to have to be a lot of components working together to try to get the the product to actually pan out to the to the gee whiz that we want it to be. Yeah, and I think uh, you know those of us who are in this thermal power space, I love the word seductive because it, it is a seductive fuel because we we need a a way to maintain uh, our our relevance, and not just for the sake of maintaining our relevance, but because we know how valuable synchronous rotating machinery is to our electricity networks. Right, as we move towards more and more wind and solar and and storage, um, you know, I think I think we're as a, as a as a energy um, marketplace, we're realizing that we do need large turbines and recips and, and things of that nature, but we need to have them, you know, greener. And so that's, I think, what makes hydrogen a seductive uh, fuel for all of us. And we just need to figure out the rest. Well, yeah. When you look at, when you look at the functionality of a grid, I mean, it, it wasn't until 1965 that we actually had a grid collapse. We just, we, from the time that, that, that Edison and Tesla and Westinghouse and all those guys were drinking Quavassier and having fun, <laughs> to 1965, we never had a grid collapse. And then all of a sudden it happened. And it happened to be in the in the northeast part of the United States and 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 up into Canada. And as 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 the electrical engineers watched it happen, and they watched the lights blink out across states, they all kind of looked at each other and wonder what we do now. <laughs> Nobody ever thought of that. Right. And. You know, they went almost half a century without pondering that. You know, you know, it's it, it, it's like 
having a nice big Briggs and Stratton engine with no recoil starter. Jeez, we should have put, we should have put one of those there because it'd be real handy right now. Oh, I love I love the analogy. But you know, so I mean, they 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 figured it out. They figured out how to restart a grid. Okay, we're at a place now where the customer base, the ratepayers, are are changing our technology for us. They're demanding that this green power revolution. They're demanding more efficiency. They're demanding more more environmental consciousness and and and, and you know emissions have got to go down and, and they're the ones that are that are forcing it and 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 as a function of of, of them being the ratepayer we have to listen to that but they're not only they're not only changing you know coal-fired power plants or 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 you know oil oil burning gas turbines they're changing the grid, and I think that that's our our biggest challenge in our because we're kind of in the middle space here. Uh, we're looking at this and and okay, we're trying to make our efficient our, our 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 machines more efficient and 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 uh, you know more environmentally friendly, but we really don't know what the grid is going to look like in this in this new configuration because if we don't have big coal fire power plants we lose something that all those ratepayers never have heard of and, and know nothing about and that's called grid inertia mm. And, 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 and they don't understand the importance of, of that function. And so if we lose grid inertia, then having grid collapses is going to start being common. Yeah. Mm. And, 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 and they're not going to understand why, because they're not electrical engineers. And you know we can sit there and say, well, well, you you told us you wanted to do this, so here we are, you know. But that's not really the right answer either. Mm -hmm. So somehow we have to we have to do a better job, I think, of educating the ratepayers as to what they're really asking us to do. Okay. And then explain why it takes a dad gum long. Because, yeah. because this this system that we've built up, nobody planned this. Nobody planned the grid. The grid happened. Okay. And we've 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 tried to update it. We've tried to manage it. We've tried to protect it. We've tried to uh, be responsible in how we we expand and grow it. But at the end of the day, there's really not any planning. Now all of a sudden, we're being asked to plan. 
and we're being asked to do it with a number of layers of complexity that we've kind of never had to deal with before. Yeah, yeah. Well, when they, when they built those 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 big coal plants back in the 30s, we cared about emissions. No. Yeah. We were just shoveling coal, fired up. <laughs> so, you know, now all of a sudden, well, they, they want their electricity, but, but now they're telling us how they want it. Mm-hmm. And, and for us to be able to be successfully, you know, to be successful in our ventures, I think it's incumbent upon us to do some education that the other way and explain to them, you know, why it's as complicated as, as it turns out to be. Yeah, for sure. No, you're, you're spot on. Education has kind of been the theme of, of this conversation and I think for, with good reason. So, um, as, as we kind of land the plane here, Brian, I got uh, two questions in closing. One is kind of fun and one is, uh, a, a bit more uh, serious, uh, for our listeners to leave them with some wisdom for you from you. Sorry. So, uh, for, first question is, uh, if I, if I made you pick, What's your uh, what's your what's your favorite turban? What 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 holds a, a special spot in your heart? Well, it's always your first one. <laughs> you never for you me, never say your first. Yeah, and for me that that's you know GE's LM twenty five hundred. That was that was the main propulsion engine in the Navy that I dealt with. Uh, most of the time it was I was on either them or Allison five hundred one K seventeen. Did a little bit of work on the Avons, but but that LM2500, that was that was bread and butter for for pretty much the arc of my Navy career. So cool, you know. cool. And uh, last question for for our listeners who might be kind of in the final stages of of commissioning uh, a gas turbine plant, or you know maybe thinking about doing one or struggling to operate one. You know what's one word of, of wisdom, one thought as we close that you can kind of leave them with to take and, and, and think about and work on uh, what's kind of the one nugget that you can leave them with. Under promise and over deliver. <laughs> everybody, everybody, when they, when they start looking at these plants, everybody looks at the spec sheets that the OEM gives you and they don't take any consideration of the fact that that's a new and clean machine that you know is is sitting at the factory running under perfect conditions. Now you're taking that machine and you're taking it to I don't know a desert or someplace close to to, to salt water or some other undesirable environment. Okay. And you're going to want to run it for an extended period of time. And so, you know, don't commit to those new and clean numbers to your contractual obligations. Commit mm-hmm. to something a little less. Give yourself, give your operators and, and, and maintenance people, give them some room. Give them some room to move. And if you do that, you're going to have a much better chance of hitting your numbers throughout your, the career of the machine than you would if you stick with that spec sheet. 
I love it. I love it. Under promise and over deliver. Um, Brian, thank you uh, so much for being on the Energy Radio podcast. This has uh, been a delight. I'm smarter for it, and uh, I think our listeners will be as well. Thank you again. It was my pleasure, and uh, I appreciate being invited. Thanks a lot, Matt. Right on. Thank you. Well, on behalf of uh, Brian and myself, uh, thank you for listening to episode uh, 40. Uh, I'd like to thank Lisa Barber, our executive producer, Mark Charbonneau, uh, our man behind the glass. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Fred Bunkering. And uh, until next time, stay safe and under promise and over deliver. Take care.